and I'm a naturopathic medical student at National University of Natural Medicine. You're listening to the Herbal Hour podcast, where we have inspired discussions with healers, physicians, and experts on all topics related to holistic medicine, spirituality, alternative therapy, and healthcare. The future is integrative, open-minded, and inspired by ancient wisdom rooted in nature. This week on the Herbal Hour podcast, we have return guest Dr. Locke Chandler. He is a naturopathic physician and licensed acupuncturist here in Oregon, and he specializes in adjunctive cancer care and integrative therapy. In this episode, we talk all about how to support your immune system naturally, your internal terrain, in the face of all these threats that are now facing us, how gut health is related to our immune system and how boosting your gut health can improve it, the role of genetics in cancer and how Chinese medicine views cancer, and how our emotional state our mental state and our levels of stress impact our health and our immune system, as well as things that we can do to improve our health. If you like the Herbal Hour podcast, be sure to give us a like, a subscribe, and a comment. It helps us a lot and supports the growth of natural medicine. If you're the type that likes to watch the video of a podcast, this episode will be on YouTube on the Herbal Hour podcast channel. Without any further ado, here is our guest, Dr. Locke Chandler. Once again, he is a naturopath physician and licensed acupuncturist. Our last episode that we had was on integrative oncology. The idea of integrative medicine, to give some background, is the idea that conventional methods and natural methods and alternative methods can be used together and integrated. Thank you, uh, Dr. Chandler, for, uh, for being on the show. We had an excellent conversation last time about uh, naturopathic oncology, natural approaches to those. You shared some great stories. Uh, I'd like to welcome you again to the podcast. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So today I wanted to talk about starting off, what can you do naturally for coronavirus? Because I know there's a mass hysteria right now about coronavirus, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions about how to approach it that someone such as yourself could help us out with. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the same approaches that we think about with regards to the flu or influenza are going to be applicable with coronavirus. But I'm going to go backwards a little bit to something that Louis Pasteur is quoted to have saying on his deathbed, which is the microbe is of little consequence if one's internal environment is in order. So here we have the father of the germ theory and pasteurization, mm. and very influential in the wine and cheese industry. The, there's a germ, you know, a bug for every condition. And what he's saying near mm. his death was saying, you know, the internal environment is key also. And so that's, in a sense, a very Chinese medicine approach. We talk about that mm. internal garden and how susceptible is that garden to have that seed plant and grow. And in this case, how susceptible is it to have that virus plant and grow and proliferate? And so we're going to talk about the same sort of things that help overall health and which translates to resilience and resistance to being, you could say, exposed to the COVID-19 or the coronavirus and then coming down with it. Mm. I often give an analogy. It's like if we're in an elevator, and maybe the elevator's crowded, maybe there's 15 people, and somebody comes in on a floor and they're sneezing, coughing, and blowing their nose, and just, you know that they're sick. Out of that 15 people, all 15 are not going to get sick. Mm. It's like who does get sick and who does not get sick are equally important. But it's how susceptible is that terrain to getting sick with the coronavirus. So we were talking about it, I was talking about it with my students just earlier today. What would you do? And that's why I was quizzing them. It's like, what would you do for it? It's like, so we know that we want to base the foundation in a healthy choices diet. If we're doing a lot of sugar, we know the immune system doesn't do as well with the 
sort of a high simple carbohydrate mm-hmm. or high sugar diet. It just is not functioning as adequately. If people aren't sleeping well, we know that that reduces the immune system. Mm-hmm. We know if they're not hydrating well, we know that that is a key. And so hydration, I was asking a student, it's like, well, why is that? Mm-hmm. And so she was talking a little bit about it, and I was going into a little bit more about, you know, hydration is going to impact our mucosal secretions and how moist are our passageways. And so if we're not hydrating adequately, we may not have good moist respiratory passages. And so a virus then can potentially travel mm. deeper without getting trapped or glued or adhered to a moist mucosal membrane, mm. which then enables it to get a little bit deeper in that then may, if it starts to grow, can be more problematic. And so we're talking about the basics of what I call the goods, good food, good diet, good mm. sleep, good hydration, good exercise, good mental emotional wellness. Because we know that when people are under stress, that they're gonna, their immune system is not going to be as good as it is when they're not under stress. Mm. And so we can see immune cells being altered under states of stress and duress. We could even go into social support. And if they have a good social support, we know that their immune system is going to be healthier versus those who don't have good social support. So really thinking in a holistic manner about what could help them. But if we're going into supplements, it's like maybe probiotics, a healthy gut bugs. It's a great way to help support the immune system. Mm. A gut that's in balance is going to be a healthy immune system with regards to, you know, it's not going to be stressed by having flora out of balance. The immune, the, the gut is about the size of a tennis court. And so mm. if we spread out the surface area flat, so if the flora is out of balance or mm. we're eating sort of things that irritate the gut. Oftentimes, wheat, dairy, sugar are common gut irritants. We know that from people with irritable or inflammatory bowel disorder. And so doing probiotics is a way to help Mm. support that. But then there's other things, too, Mm. that we could do to support from vitamin C or zinc, Mm. you know, some of the different supplemental aspects that we could do to support it. Yeah, there's there's definitely been an overemphasis of, you know, containing the germs rather than as you were saying, what is the reason that people catch it and what is the reason that people who do catch it, you know, do better or they do worse? Mm-hmm. Because obviously people who are most susceptible are the elderly and people in, with other conditions. Right. And that's just proving that the state of your body matters. Right. Um, and I think, you know, there's all this emphasis on like, you know, washing your hands and scrubbing everything down, but so little emphasis on, you know, healthy diet or you know what you're doing to take care of yourself and you bring up a really interesting point that I was discussing with somebody about the stress factor of it right so stress obviously suppresses our immune system um but what does a mass hysteria do to the immune system like how harmful is it to actually be so afraid of something that you're possibly making yourself more susceptible to it it's actually kind of ironic that in like being very afraid of getting sick you are actually making yourself more likely to get sick because, you know, you're going into that fight or flight type, like fear response, cortisol's going, immune system shut down. Um, so what are some things that people can do to kind of calm themselves down, <laughs> I guess? You right. know, for, for me, it's going back to the basics. And yes, stress is going to be a component. Is it going to be the, the silver bullet of whether you catch it or not? Probably not. There's usually, as you said, we know the elderly are more susceptible and they often have comorbid or coexisting conditions mm-hmm. of ill health. And so we know that that is going to be weakening their resilience and maybe increasing their susceptibility. Mm-hmm. And so that's 
the piece is like, okay, how do we just de-stress and take care of those things that we can control? Mm. It's like, so just to, to do those things of which that are in our control, our diet, lifestyle, exercise, you know, hydration, and hand-washing. Semmelweis was correct. It's hand-washing is key. And just, of course, there's the recent data on clean your cell phones. They're very dirty. And your computers are also very dirty. So just having good hygiene around the home, but also taking care of self and resistance, resilience. So you mentioned a good thing about the elderly, too. And so we talked about that just with my students. And so one thing that I often see with elderly patients is like they're often not eating well. And so there is some level of malnourishment. And typically, they're not getting enough protein. And we need protein to run body systems. But then on top of that, we're going to help support our immune system. Mm -hmm. So if we're not getting enough protein really to run our body systems, our immune system may not be getting the nutrients it needs to really function well. And then digestive flora is often out of balance, and then our digestive enzymes may not be as well as they were or secreted as efficiently as they were when we were younger, in our 20s and 30s. And so one of the ways that we can support is really to support the gut health getting mm -hmm. adequate protein, making sure we're having good digestive enzymes. And that could be something as simple, especially for the elderly, maybe it's apple cider vinegar or a chewable papaya enzyme. Mm. And so it doesn't have to be fancy, but just something to help tone and optimize those organ systems. Mm. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit more on the connection between gut health and the immune system? Well, just to reiterate, yeah. it's like... Our immune system, in its simple terms, is really gauged to what's me, what's self, and what's non-self, what's mm -hmm. other. So self versus other. And we're usually talking about, it's like a bacteria. Okay, it's not us. Mm -hmm. Or a virus is not mm -hmm. us. It's like, so we're trying to differentiate what are those foreign materials that really should not be here, not mm -hmm. be in my system, mm -hmm. not be you know, on my skin, or at least into, maybe I have a, uh, a laceration or a cut. You know, mm -hmm. so then it gets in and the immune system is able to say, hey, you're not supposed to be here, so we'll get rid of you through mm -hmm. its mechanisms of the immunology mm -hmm. or the immune system. And so with that in mind, we take in the most amount of foreign material or not us in food. And so the digestive system is really at the front level mm. of sort of facing what's not us. And so when the immune system in the gut is not competent, Foods can be more irritating or more what we call foreign material-like or antigenic. Mm -hmm. And so causing that immune system to be on guard. And so if the bacteria aren't helping us digest food, if our enzymes aren't helping us digest food and breaking, that translates to is breaking particles down into absorbable chunks or getting it ready to pass out and excrete. And so if particles are a little bit too big or undigested, it's like that can potentially be more irritating the deeper it goes into the digestive system and call, cause what's called in a simple term is leaky gut. And so mm. if we have typically in our gut lining, it's going to be a tight junction. And so as things may swell and get inflamed, that tight junction is no longer so tight. Mm. And so we can get some bigger particles in sooner mm. than what may be typically seen by the gut. And then the immune system's like, hey, this shouldn't be here. And then the immune system gets activated and may cause more swelling and more leaky gut or immune challenge. So the immune system's not really strong or weak. It's really in or out of balance. So if it's overworked, overutilized in the gut, maybe it's going to be underrepresented elsewhere, such as the respiratory tract. Mm. That brings up a, an interesting point with, uh, with food allergies. So there's this idea that, you know, if you have this or that food allergy that you should avoid that food. 
but typically, obviously, and you might have seen this in your practice, um, that people who have food allergies tend to have a lot of food allergies. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of this rising theory that it's the kind of leaky gut thing where it's, it's not that they're really allergic to it as much as these particles are getting into their blood and into their body where they shouldn't be because a normal gut lining will kind of keep everything contained and they'll go out. Um, but if you start, you know, it starts going through the leaky gut, then it can affect people that might not otherwise be allergic. So what are some key approaches for kind of healing that lining? Uh, does that involve like probiotics? Does that involve like what diet you eat? Does that involve fasting? What's, and so there what's are, the take on that? That's a great question. So there's a lot of ways that you can approach healing the gut. It's mm. like flora is going to be a component of that. And you know, whether you think about supplementing or just doing fermented foods in a state that where the gut is really not in balance, fermented foods may not be enough fast enough. And so we may need to do more of a targeted approach with a high-quality probiotic. And so that is one aspect. Digestive enzymes is going to be another because it really that's going to help break down particles. The diet is going to be another piece too. And after I've done thousands of food allergy tests, and I'm more likely to see repetitious foods in the diet. Mm. So the take-home for me after doing thousands is to say repetition can create irritation. Mm. Meaning that if the mm. gut sees a food over and over and over again, or multiple times in a day, the same food, and I'm more concerned about people who are on restrictive diets, such as vegan or vegetarian, which translates to it limits our food box that we are choosing from. And so the more likely that we're going to see repetitious foods, the more likely I'm going to see either a food allergy or a sensitivity or intolerance to that food, mostly due to repetition, creating irritation. Hmm. So, um, so what you're saying is that the, the foods that we eat very often are the ones that are, we're more likely to react to allergically? I'm more likely to see a repetitious food than I am going to see a food that's not repetitious. Now, there's what I call sort of constitutional irritants. You know, for some people, it's like they can't do shellfish. It's like, okay, great, we know about that. And mm. then others, where I would see, for example, I'd have food tests come back and it, and it would be like cashews would show up. Now, granted, some people can have food allergies, but then I, in talking with the patient, they're saying, oh, that's the main nut that I eat snack on, and I probably have it at least two to three times a day. Mm. It's like, okay, it's like, so what's going on here? Or I would see chicken shows up. It's like, well, mm. I'm trying to avoid red meat because that's not good for me, right? And so that's a whole other discussion. But foods that they eat consistently can be more likely to show up. But I'd see it to soy, and the person's a, a vegetarian or vegan, and they're doing it breakfast, lunch, and dinner to get some protein. Mm. And so, again... Foods aren't bad. I think they're badly eaten, mm. meaning that repetition creates irritation. Mm. But I wanted to address another thing that's very important. Okay, so we're talking about food choices. And so I try and take that variety is the spice of life saying to heart and just say, okay, I don't like a strict rotational diet, but trying to just get variety. Most Americans eat like 20, 25 foods. And if you go into the grocery store, like into the fruit and vegetable section, there's a lot more than that. And so it's just trying to get outside of our norms and sort of our habits and just to say, how do we broaden that out? Just to create more variety. So if we get variety of foods, if we have good healthy flora, if we have good digestive enzymes, another important aspect is stress. So going back to our nervous system, we Mm. have the parasympathetic rest and digest, also sympathetic fight or flight. If we are predominantly in fight or flight, 
what that is. It's prioritizing me running away from the proverbial tiger behind me mm-hmm. and to say, okay, to run, I need blood supply to my eyes so I can see, to my brain so I can think, to my heart so it can beat and move the blood, mm-hmm. to my muscles and my lungs. It's like digestion, reproductive is not a priority at that time. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is blood supply is reduced to the gut. We know blood supply is very important for healing of tissue. So if there's an irritation or inflammation, but I'm under sympathetic stress a lot, I may not be able to heal that adequately so I can perpetuate an inflammatory condition. Mm. So I think maybe one, on one of the shifts I was on with you, we talked a little bit about the uh, migrating motor complex mm-hmm. and how fasting allows that to work and allows our gut to heal. What role do you see for water, juice fasts, uh, things like that in healing the gut, healing chronic conditions? Um, I know you uh, adjunctively treat a lot of patients with cancer and fasting therapies are, of course, like one of the go-tos. Um, and I also have some more questions on that because that's a that's always an interesting topic. So right now we're seeing a lot on, on fasting and diets like the ketogenic diet and just what role does that play. And so we don't have a lot of good data with regards to fasting. Mm. And so what I mean by that is like we don't have sort of studies where they've taken people who fasted with a control group and then just seen how are they responding? How are each of them responding? Mm-hmm. So what we do know that it does seem to help with regards to symptoms where, you know, the jury's still out with regards to how is it impacting the mm. cancerous process. Mm. So it may help alleviate some of those fasting symptoms. What I'm always, or the, the cancer treatment symptoms, what I'm concerned about always, though, with the patients going through cancer is getting adequate nutrition. Mm. And so we talked about the importance of protein and running your immune system, and when you're fasting, you're not eating. And so with people who fast, I'm always asking them, it's like about their weight and are they losing weight? Because I don't want them to start losing their lean muscle mass or telling that sort of that response by saying they're not getting the adequate nutrition or adequate calories or adequate protein. And so we're losing muscle mass, which is a stress to the body, Mm. which is the exact opposite way that I want to do. However, sort of the intermittent fasting seems to be helpful with regards to regulating our blood sugars. And so, which can be also another tangent of which we can help support the immune system mm. with a better regulated blood sugar balancing system. Mm. And so that's just another avenue or another nuance to go. But at this point in time, really, you know, I don't want people to worry about food. It's just trying to get variety, trying to get adequate protein in for those patients who are going through cancer treatment and to know about when we do something like intermittent fasting, which is typically from 12 to 14 to 16 hours, it's like it seems to help with regards to our insulin sensitivity. So our body's response to insulin in that we're going to be more responsive Mm. to it as opposed to insulin insensitivity or insulin resistance, Mm. whereas our body may not respond as adequately to insulin. Mm. So meaning that we're regulating our blood sugar response better and again, that seems to be an important role with regards to our immune system because it seems to help with regards to patients with cancer. Mm. There's this idea amongst kind of the more natural therapies for cancer that cancer tends to thrive on uh, sugar. Mm-hmm. And when you cut it out, it's not um, able to grow as well. And then also mm-hmm. there's another idea that cancer cells are not as able to respond to like big stresses of the body like a fasted state whereas healthy cells are more likely to survive that Mm -hmm. because 
their metabolic systems are obviously better. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're mm-hmm. more functional, mm-hmm. whereas cancer cells are just they're just gone off on the wires. So what's what's your take on that? Do you think that that's an aspect of why like sugar and fasting might have an impact? And so I get I get that question a lot. So one of the common questions that a cancer patient would ask is I've I've seen online or I've heard that sugar feeds cancer. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some responses to that, you know, in literature from big hospital systems including Memorial Sloan Kettering, etc., that are saying no. And it's like, well, if we're being honest about physiology, it's like sugar feeds every cell of the body. I mean, it's just, it's a preferred fuel. And so how can we say that it doesn't feed cancer? I think it's a more nuanced approach though than that. We can't just stop there. And so it's more of what you're talking about. It's like, we know that sugar feeds every cell of the body, but cancer cells are consuming nutrients more rapidly. And mm. so if we have more sugars in the system, it's just gonna be able to eat more. And so that's where the fasting come, sometimes can sort of rein that in a little bit. And whereas a healthy cell, which is not trying to grow without stopping because it doesn't know how to stop. It's like taking the brakes off a car. It's mm. like then they can deal with those lower sugar states, whereas a cancer cell, it's, it just wants more and more. And it, so it struggles when that substance or that source is not there. Anymore. Mm. And so it can just impact its ability to, in a sense, live. But just to, I always like to reframe it. And so cancer cells aren't, I wouldn't say they're good or bad, they just are. Evolutionarily, they're part of just how we evolved. It's like there is a DNA damage and that, you know, it's going to lead us down this one path if we can't repair it. And so it's, you could say that it's been an evolutionary aspect, but with regards to health, it's like it can be fatal just with regards to having a tumor that interferes Mm. with body functions. And so the body's translation, when we turn on these oncogenes that are in these cells, these cancer genes, they're often utilized to, if I cut myself, to grow and repair. They're utilized Mm. when the baby is in the mother's belly just to cause growth. And so these genes turn on, but it's when they lose control that then they can become a problem. And when they bypass our immune's ability to see them or deal with Mm. them, then it's a problem. And so we're trying to do everything we can with regards to going back to the original question of sugar mm-hmm. and blood sugar control. It's like, okay, we know that when we eat a healthy whole food choices diet, we're getting fiber, roughage, protein. These things are diluting some of those sugars or carbs that we're going to get out of a fruit or a vegetable, which again, we need some of those nutrients. You know, But when I have more of the pastries, the cakes, and the cookies, it's like my blood sugars are going to be higher and maybe higher for longer periods of time, which is giving my body fuel that it may not need, especially if I'm carrying more pounds than is ideal for my frame. It's like, Mm. so for me saying that maybe my blood sugar regulation is not as optimal as it could be. Mm. You bring up a really interesting point about the genetics aspect of it. So there's obviously a lot of um, money, uh, time, and effort going into researching, you know, what gene causes what. Like, this is the gene that causes Alzheimer's. But you bring up the point that even a gene that seems like it's defective can have beneficial uses, like in the oncogene case of like healing and repairing. What do you think the future role of like gene therapies and understanding genetics is in cancer? Because that seems to be the way that they've um, the the system in general has gone in in terms of research. Mm-hmm. They want to know what gene causes mm-hmm. cancer. Can we you know, get rid of that gene? Can we 
Yeah, know, so that's where, movies. you know, what they're trying to do is to do some of the snips or they're trying yeah. to sort of repair some of that DNA anomaly and then propagate it or enhance it mm. to basically take over in a healthful way. So they're trying to, in a sense, steer the ship down a road that is going to be more healthful by manipulating the DNA or the genetics. Mm. But a lot of the targeted therapy or immunotherapy is trying to interrupt one of these oncogene or pathways that the cancer cell may be using mm. on its journey for, for growth. Mm. And so it's trying to put the brakes on that aspect, but then maybe trying to, some of those immunotherapies are trying to unveil the cancer cell and help support or drive the immune system. It's like, because there's some methods that the cancer cells use is basically to cloak themselves and become invisible. And so how do we uncloak them and then stimulate the immune system? Mm. So there's different ways that some of these immunotherapies or targeted therapies work. Yeah. And so it's, mm. the mindset though is thinking more about how do I sort of kill the cancer or interfere with the cancer you know, from my standpoint, and that's part of the integrative medicine, it's like, how do I optimize the terrain? How do I optimize the overall health and wellness of this individual? And to me, the best would be doing that plus a targeted or, or immunotherapy. Mm. That, to me, would bode well better than mm. just doing one or the other. Mm. Have you heard of uh, these new immunotherapies where they they take the person's, like, Immu own immune cells out of their body and they basically train them to be like super mm -hmm. soldiers and then they put them back in the body. They do that obviously in a lot of different ways, whether it's like exposing it to the exact, you know, biological tags that that cancer has on it so that they kind of get used to what they're looking mm -hmm. for or sometimes like genetic modification of the cells. Do you, do you see a future in that as medicine progresses of like using the body's own tissues to heal itself? Oh, I think there's definitely going to be a potential application for that, almost like a vaccine or just a way mm. that you can sort of signal the immune system to be more on surveillance for a certain cell or aspect. And so, you know, science is, is growing exponentially and just with mm. its regards to what it can and cannot do. And I think that we're going to be able to do more and more. But I'm always focused on what can I do to help the underlying terrain. Mm. You know, so to give you more of an example of that, you know, I've had people come in and, you know, they want me to, in a sense, kill the cancer. And so I, you know, that to me is, is not the way that I really work. It's like I work to support the system. It's like I don't do the healing. It's like I help them help themselves to the degree that they can. It's like we're going to work together and I'm going to give them the best information I know about with regards to what is the diet that they should be eating. How can I help them go through their treatment with minimal side effects and the highest quality of life? And then how just help them respond to their treatment better. And so that's really sort of how I'm trying to work with them. But I've had people come in and say, okay, you know, help me kill the cancer. It's like, well, how are you eating? It's like, well, you know, I, I have frosted flakes in the morning. And, you know, I usually have, you know, maybe I'll eat at a fast food restaurant for lunch. And, okay, well, how, what are you doing for exercise? Oh, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy, you know, working there. Or it's like, how's your sleep? Well, it's, it's not so good. I, you know, I probably get three or four, but it's broken up. And it's like, so we have these other foundational aspects that they're not doing. They want me to sort of help them with the cancer, but they're not eating well. They're not sleeping well. They're not exercising. Mm. And we have much more data on the power of nutrition, the power of exercise, 
you know, to me, it's like uh, the lower hanging fruit that is going to be much more uh, mm. beneficial for them than me giving them an IV, mm-hmm. you know, a, a IV vitamin C, you know, that we don't have great data on, but we're missing a lot of more uh, a bountiful harvest with regards to the basics that they're not doing. Mm. There's this idea that cancer doesn't happen overnight, that it takes, you know, 10, 15 or more years of all sorts of um, deficiencies in lifestyle, like whether it's sleep or diet, that all these over a long period of time put the body in a more compromised state, and that makes it more likely for something like that to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that also relates to uh, bringing it back to like infections and coronavirus. It's like one doesn't catch something all of a sudden. It's like, what are the couple of months before you got sick look like? I mean there's a strong relationship between, you know, stress levels, how you've been feeling about your life, if you've been feeling run down, that that puts you in a state. And that doesn't just happen overnight. You don't just like suddenly have, uh, you know, an immune deficiency and then the next day you catch the thing. There's much more subtle uh, factors. Oh, it's it's very nuanced. I would say good health doesn't happen overnight and bad health doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. And with regards to cancer, it would be very rare for a cancer just to proliferate mm. from nothing. I mean, I've had patients where, you know, something has showed up over weeks to months. But yes, typically cancer has been there for 5, 10, 15 years mm. before it's detectable, as in by a lump or symptomatic or it's going to exhibit or cause symptoms like anemia or fatigue or weight mm. loss that then is going to cause further investigation. Mm. And so that's the piece. It's the same thing with the coronavirus. It's like, so we know the majority of the people that have died are sort of over 60, 70. They typically have those comorbid or coexisting conditions. Mm. They're typically in either a hospital or a long-term care facility. You know, it's like, so they're not healthy people. And the majority of people are going to not really know that they have it. And that's why I think we know that right now, over 100,000 cases worldwide, we know roughly between three and 4,000 deaths have been attributed to it, my guess is. And so the fatality rate is higher than the flu, for sure. And so if we think that the flu may kill 0.1 versus corona, which is 2 to 4%, so out of 100,000 people, that would be about, for the flu, 100 people. But we may have underreported the amount of people with corona because we're not testing everybody. And so mm-hmm. people, 96% of people, may just think that they have cold or even at this time of year allergy symptoms and so not really go in to get tested or be impacted in a way that is going to be potentially fatal Mm. and so that's the piece it's like we may have underreported the amount of people with the coronavirus and i think if we were more accurate we'd probably see that the death rate Mm. drop to maybe somewhere closer Mm. to the flu just because we probably don't have a complete picture of where we're at right now. Yeah, and sometimes I wonder if our ways of trying to contain the spread of it are actually making it worse. Like the idea of like viruses mutating. (laughs) Like you you basically, you know, they say with all those antibacterial, antivirus, you know, soaps and washes, Mm -hmm. it's like kills 99.9% of germs. It's like, but the 0.1%, those are like, you know, super germs, and right. are we just creating, like, uh, even more virulent strains by being overly focused on, like, that's, disinfecting our environment? I mean, that's a great question, and so if we go step back to the flu virus, we know that they mainly picked the year before four out of potentially 16 strains to then grow and, and make it vaccines out of, and so really, it's, it's luck whether they get 
you know, a complete match of the four, or they typically get one, two, maybe three out of the potential 16 strains of which then they're trying to aim for next year. So it's really a guessing game that way. But, yeah, viruses adapt rapidly, many generations within a day. And so, like you said, it's survival of the fittest or almost that Darwinian approach. Mm. And so that's why, <clears throat> to me, if we focus on containment, that is a piece. And so good hygiene, Semmelweis, washing the hands, making sure we're cleaning. But there is something to a hyper-clean, hyper-sterile environment that actually is mm. a disservice. We know with regards to kids, we know that having too sterile an environment is actually can predispose them to childhood cancers. Mm. And so we know that when they have, when kids have dogs, they're actually healthier. It's mm. like when you get a dog that's licking your face and they've sort of been in the dirt and everything like that, mm. it's like that's actually helpful for your immune system in a sense, for your immune system to practice. And, you know, we want it to be exposed to these foreign materials, foreign mm. pathogens, you know, most of the time are going to be not impactful for us. And so, but it helps our immune system practice. Like the analogy is like, if I want to get better at basketball, I shoot, I shoot baskets. If I don't shoot, I'm not going to get very good at it. And right. so it's our immune system's the same way. If we don't practice with exposures, then our immune system may not be competent. And then if we stress it in ways such as uh, not a healthy choices diet, not adequate hydration, not good sleep or rest, you know, then mm. we're going to be affecting it in a sort of a double whammy way. Yeah, and that's especially the case, too, in, like, gut health, right? So I've heard the idea of, like, having overly sterile everything also has a problem for gut health. Like, there's some people who advocate even, you know, letting kids play around the dirt and get all right. sorts of weird things in their mouth, and they don't, you know, interfere because they, they believe that that's part of the, like, immune and gut training process. Right. We, I could say we would have millennia of experience of lack of hygiene and, you know, we didn't sort of, it served us to a degree. And so we know that the hyper-sterile uh, sort of sanitary mm. conditions are not always better for us. Mm. I've heard that they also um, increase like allergic responses, right. the like TH1 and TH2, where I believe TH2 is allergy, right? And TH1 is infection. Like, those are the mm -hmm. T helper cells. I think I'm getting that right. Um, but that they're in a kind of balance where it's like if you're having really, really strong allergic symptoms, your, like, uh, immune response in terms of infections is lower and vice versa. That if you're actually, if you have an infection, your allergic symptoms are less or if you're exposed to um, things like that. And I wonder if our, if our sterile environment isn't actually part of the cause of a lot of these weird allergies that are just happening to people. Or I think that's definitely a, a consideration. And again, you know, if we're not able to help practice with our immune system, our response may not be representative mm. of a balanced immune state. Mm. It might, in a sense, freak out at this littlest thing, whereas more of a balanced, mm. measured approach would be more realistic. Mm. What's your take on this... Um, this new idea that cancer is actually a metabolic disease. Well, I think that, you know, there's a, a component of that. And so mm. we can't, you know, making things black and white is usually not realistic in life. And so mm, there's always shades of gray. Mm -hmm. And so what is the met metabolic components of that? But what I would say is, you know, how is metabolics impacted by diet, by nutrition, mm. by healthy gut flora? by having an immune system that's practiced or by having a, a body that's not stressed, 
that is sleeping adequately. How is that going to impact the metabolics? We know that the metabolics are impacted by all those things. And so that's the piece of how mm. do we optimize the terrain with doing some of those things that I mentioned should help you optimize some of the metabolic components that is what we're trying to optimize mm. too. Mm. Have you noticed any uh, consistency or any patterns in patients that tend to have cancer? Like, is there any kind of emotional qualities that they tend to have? Mm. Is there any diet patterns? Is there anything that you've kind of, out of seeing a lot of people with cancer, like, that's weird. People with cancer tend to have this, or this is happening in their lives. That's a great question, but I'm going to, you know, typically there's no black and white. There's there's various shades of gray. Um, You know, one thing that I would say, it's common for me to hear patients who are diagnosed with cancer to talk about a significant stress event in the previous one to three years. Mm. And so that could be a death in the family or, you know, one patient that's like they had a person die for the previous three years, you know, from a parent to a grandparent to an uncle to a close friend. It's extremely stressful for them to a divorce, to, um, you know, maybe one of their children got sick or... You know, something happened that was significant in regards to stress. You know, again, that's not going to be for everybody, but it goes to how is the immune system doing under states of stress or duress? Mm. Have you found any ways to to minimize the impact of those stresses? Because obviously those factors are unavoidable. Death, right. you know, in the family or of a loved one or divorce to some extent. Mm-hmm. Those are things that kind of happen to us. But what's the difference between somebody who responds like healthily to it and doesn't get sick and somebody who gets sick? Like, what are they doing differently? Well, I, I mean, again, it's going to, you know, Chinese medicine with that mm-hmm. yin-yang symbol, the black and white swirled symbol that we see with regards to, you know, Eastern medicine mm-hmm. is telling us about the importance of balance. And so they're saying, I think we talked about it last hour, is that when the body's in balance, we have health. And so really... You know, we are going to have those things in our life. We're going to have times of stress. And so, to me, it's like a teeter-totter. If I have things that really stress me on one side, what's the other side that I can do to help me cope with that? Mm. And so that's the piece. It's like, okay, those things that I know help me cope. It's like getting outside, exercising, eating well, sleeping well. And so just knowing that when you have those tremendous stressors, it's like, what are you doing to help yourself? and to help yourself cope. That will help with resilience. Maybe it's going to get acupuncture or massage or going for a run or going to work out. You know, it's like, so what is that that's helping you balance, which will help you cope, which will help you and your immune system? Mm. Right. So we touched uh, briefly upon what your practices are for, you know, coping, for self-care. And you mentioned uh, getting out into nature, like hiking around, things like that. Um what about that is healing to you, like personally? What, what's your experience of, you know, going out into nature? When I think about going out into nature and from feeling the sun or the rain on my face mm. uh, to feeling the breeze to you know, seeing the birds and seeing sort of the life that's out there. Like just this morning, walking my dog, as I was walking along our creek, I saw a beaver. And it was just gnawing on a stick. And it was just there, just sort of existing. And so it's a great way to get, sort of get out of myself and just focus on the present moment. But just being in a world where we don't have concrete, 
and don't have skyscrapers is just a nice way to help support my immune system because we have data. You know, the Japanese call it forest bathing. Mm-hmm. Just about supporting my immune system and decreasing my blood pressure and reducing my cortisol response and my stress response. And so and we know it's going to help me sleep. It's like, so just trying to do those things to help balance my life besides trying to eat well and to sleep well and to hydrate mm. well, just to do the basics, just to support yeah. my own immune health. So I am more hopefully resilient against COVID-19 or the coronavirus. Yeah, you certainly seem like you'd be. You, uh, you strike me as a person who tends to be very like present and, uh, and mindful. And I think that that is way more beneficial than most people give it credit to in terms of um, stress. Now, I was wondering, what is the difference um, with how Chinese medicine views something like cancer versus the more conventional Mm -hmm. approach? Great question. So going back to balance, it's like, so that's really what Chinese medicine would say. It's like, so whether it's cancer that somebody has, or maybe it's high blood pressure, or maybe it's irritable bowel, maybe it's headaches, maybe it's knee pain. Chinese medicine would say for all of them, those aren't the problems. Mm. They're a symptom of an imbalance. Mm. So how do we help people balance with regards to knee pain or some of the drivers of blood pressure or with regards to cancer? So in one sense, cancer is a downstream factor of something that has occurred upstream. And so maybe that was an exposure to a virus. Maybe that was cigarette smoking. Maybe that was excessive alcohol. Maybe that was genetics, but maybe that was they didn't eat well. Maybe they were overweight and didn't exercise. I mean, Mm. so there's a lot of nuanced factors Mm. about that can lead to that balance. And so in one sense, it's like, okay, how do I help people balance when we're just thinking about all those things that make them Mm. them? Is there a difference between cancers? Because we, we think of cancer typically as being cancer. Mm-hmm. But there's cancer of every different organ system. And I always wonder, like, what are the, what's the difference between the different kinds of cancers in terms of which organs they manifest in? Are, is that more of a showing us that there's some kind of underlying pattern in those that maybe, you know, liver cancer is actually just fundamentally a dysfunction of the liver over, like, a long period of time? And from mm-hmm. Chinese medicine, they look at things like the liver and also metaphorically and energetically. And so, yes, I mean, we can get cancer in any tissue. And mm-hmm. so what is being affected and why? That's, a, that's another question. It's like, so we know with regards to the skin, we know repeated sunburns. It's like people with my complexion. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm likely going to have to deal with skin cancer at some point in time just because of the amount of sunburns that I've had over my life. Because mm-hmm. when I was young, we didn't have really sunscreens readily available yeah. and effective. Mm-hmm. And so going to the liver, it's like, okay, well, we know that Hepatitis C, you know, is going to be one of those causes. We know that heavy drinking and cirrhosis is going to be a potential factor. What's going to be irritative and inflammatory? We know Mm -hmm. that cancer is often there from chronic inflammation. And that's a very simple term, but that's really what we're looking for. It's really what's the chronic inflammatory cause? You know, for people who smoke, just inflammation with regards to the lung. And so the body's response is to try and heal that irritation, Mm -hmm. inflammation, try and heal, try and heal, try and heal. And then with that DNA replication, cellular division, it's like then we get a DNA error. 
and that error is like taking the period off a sentence, that sentence runs and runs and runs. Mm. But it's often that chronic inflammation that then is driving sort of that healing response. Again, it's not, it's like, I like to reframe it again and say it's that cancer is not bad. It's just a cell that has tried to heal, tried to heal, and there's been an error in the DNA that then is usually not, not a good thing. And the immune system hasn't been able to take it out. Mm. of existence, which it usually is doing. It says most of us will have been dealing with cancers at one point in time, mm. often. And so, but typically our immune system is able to target it, maybe because of how we've been living our life. And so, but then at some point, maybe mm. something happens where it's able to gain a foothold and then continue on. That's an interesting point that, you know, if an area is injured, um, the body tries to heal that and the more it tries to heal that with like cell proliferation and growing more cells the more risk there is of a cancer happening um our body also has ways of fighting against cancer all the time because little mm -hmm. cancer sprout up in our body mm -hmm. all the time it's actually pretty common and i know there's actually a pretty ancient history too of people having cancer it's not just a new disease no it's been around since humans dinosaurs had cancer really? we know that oh, that's yeah true. there's evidence in the bones of dinosaurs that they've had tumors wow i mean so it's it's not but again having dna damage is a part of evolution it's just mm. a matter of in a sense darwinian is the survival of the fittest it's mm. like you know lewis thomas said that without sort of uh Without DNA damage, there would be no music. Something to that effect, you know, paraphrasing. It's like, mm. So to take us from the primordial swamp mm. and to cause some DNA damage that then evolved us into who we are today. Mm. What factors do you think specifically shut down that body's response uh, to be able to overcome that cancer? Are these more the lifestyle factors that you were speaking about and it's the immune a, system in general? That's a, that's a great question. And so that is sort of trying to tag into, you know, what can we do to help this Yeah, how can you balance. prevent it, basically? And so, again, we know that it's a chronic inflammation that then is typically leading to cancer. Like with regards to colon cancer, we know that um, the choices of the diet, if there's been mm -hmm. more of a standard American diet, which is typically processed, packaged, preserved foods, low fiber, because we know fiber is extremely important as mm. a, in a sense, an antidote to getting colon cancer, just because that's going to help with regards to the gut and the flora in the gut and the bacteria in the gut just to set up mm. an anti-inflammatory state. Mm. And when we have imbalanced flora, more irritation, inflammation from processed, mm. packaged, preserved foods, low fiber, et cetera, that we're more likely to have irritation in the colon lining over and over and over again, trying to repair, trying to repair, and then a cancer arise. Like, mm. So that's the piece. It's like we know that causes of cancer, nutrition is 30 to 35%. Mm. You know, exercise translating to body weight is probably another 25 to 30%. So right there, mm. we're at 50, 55% by how we eat, how we move our bodies and exercise. Mm. And so I mm. like to sort of look at the causes of cancer. I mean, we have genetics, you know, 5 to 10%, viruses, bacteria, alcohol, smoking, other big sources of cancer. But it's like, okay, how do we flip that and say, these are causes of cancer? How can we use them as opportunities? And so that's where, you know, from my standpoint, it's like we know that following a Mediterranean diet is anti-cancer because it's anti-inflammatory, but it's also nutrient-rich, fiber-rich. And so is it helping mm. reduce inflammation or helping with healing? It's probably a little bit of both. Mm. It's also delicious, too. So that has those <laughs> exactly. factors, like, you got to have some falafel in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you think that there's like spiritual and 
kind of more energetic factors that play into cancer. There's people like uh, Louise Hay, mm-hmm. who kind of outlines the specific cause of different kind of cancers. And of course, it gets a little bit subjective at times with like, mm-hmm. how do you decide that, you know, uh, one example is people who tend to get throat cancer, or people who don't speak their truth, or mm-hmm. they get liver cancers because they have suppressed anger, because mm-hmm. anger is related to the liver. Mm-hmm. Do you see anything like that? And what's your general take on like the more energetic and spiritual aspects of cancer? You know, again, uh, as a good biologist, always and never should be avoided. And so yeah. to stereotype people, I don't think serves us mm. well. For some people, I think that there may be some truth to that, and but it's something that they have to investigate for themselves. And so, mm. like being uh, a physician, in a sense, is just asking a lot of questions <laughs> and just seeing. And so you mentioned that that the emotion of the liver with regards to Chinese medicine is anger. All of the organs have an emotion. The liver's is anger, depression, irritability. And so how does that apply for, it's often with regards to breast cancer, viewed through the liver because the liver rules the size of the body and they would consider the breast as sort of the size of the body. Other people would say, no, it's the stomach channel. So it depends on what school of thought you're coming through, but mm-hmm. oftentimes through the liver. And so how often is that? where you have a woman with breast cancer, but then she has a history of depression. So it's not going to say, oh, that was it. I'm not saying that at all, but it's just saying, how did this play a part in potentially sort of what is going on? But more importantly for me, it's it's not looking backwards, but it's moving forwards and saying, what can I do to support sort of reducing that history of Mm. depression if it's still going on to move forward and to create better balance? Yeah. I mean, so that's the piece that Mm. I think is more important. It's like, yes, we can look at sort of past history, but I think the ability to ask the question and just have the person be introspective and just say, nope, that's not it at all. Great. Mm. Or to say, well, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way. Mm. Because there are, I have breast cancer patients where anger was not an issue and then others where anger was a definitive issue. For example, I had a patient, she and her husband were separated. They weren't divorced because they couldn't afford it. And he was living on a different floor of the house, and he was also dating other Mm. people. And she had tremendous anger about that, understandable anger, Mm. but also frustration. And so for me, it's like I couldn't help resolve sort of the divorce or the living situation, but it's merely how can I help her balance today, either with acupuncture or with herbs or with diet, just to help the liver or help to decrease irritation, inflammation, and other ways to help her cope and be more resilient, going back to that teeter-totter. And so, again, I think just the most important thing is just to ask the questions and to to be Mm. an observer or observant and just to say, does this shoe fit or not? Mm. So you studied uh, acupuncture, Chinese medicine, naturopathic medicine, and you also work within a more integrative setting along with conventional practitioners Mm -hmm. like MDs. Um, so you have obviously a pretty wide knowledge of what could be considered like th- almost three different kinds of systems and then maybe more depending on what else you're interested in. How do you choose which way to go? Like, how do you choose, you know, this person gets acupuncture versus this person gets Western herbs versus this person gets the Chinese formula mm-hmm. or like this person gets all three or how, how do you figure that out? That's always something I, I find fascinating because they are such like seemingly self-contained distinct systems mm-hmm. or at least they portray themselves as such well great question i think a part of that though is what is the patient willing to do 
That's, yeah, so I guess one of them just automatically falls off. Like, I don't do all that herb stuff. So it's like, okay, yeah. well, you don't do any of the exactly. herb stuff. Exactly. Or yeah. maybe they're only comfortable in one way. And so really, you know, I don't do too much of the herbs just mm. because as they're going through treatment, we don't have enough data. You know, there's very few formulas that have been studied with regards to people with cancer mm-hmm. in a studied way. Mm-hmm. As in, you know, they're taking a group of people using these herbs, a control group who's not doing these herbs, how do they each respond? Because what I, the most questions I get from an MD is often via an email or something, hey, I have a patient on these things, do you see them impacting their liver function at all? Or hey, this patient's liver enzymes are going up, is there anything you're giving them that is causing that? And so for me to look back and say, we typically, I've seen patients where they've been on herbal formulas and the oncologist has said, you know, their blood work is not responding like it typically would. What's going on? And so I've asked the patient, it's like, you know, because I've looked back over their history, it's like, wow, I don't see anything that is causing that. And then I'm talking to the patient, it's like, oh yeah, a friend of me gave me this Chinese formula. A friend mm-hmm. of mine gave me this Chinese formula. And it's like, when did you do it? And so I've been on it for three weeks. And so I go back to blood work four weeks ago, blood work two weeks ago, and there was a noted difference. And so just having them, for in that case, had them stop that formula and their blood work responded. So we could say that it was antidoting the effect of the chemotherapy in a sense. Hmm. But I've had other patients where, you know, I'd get that call and I'd be, you know, their liver enzymes are going up. And so it's like, Nothing that I was doing was causing that, but then they're on another formula, typically from outside mm. of the system, that then was slowing down liver function that was making it more toxic. And so the bottom line is, the herbs may process the chemotherapy too fast to where it's not effective. They may slow it down, which then is going to make it more toxic. And so we really need to have caution with regards to what we're exposing the body during times of treatment. It's like usually when they're done with treatment, that's more of that freedom to be able to Mm -hmm. utilize those Chinese formulas that maybe aren't as well studied, where we're not as concerned about impacting liver function in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So it's really, one is, what do we choose to do with this patient? What are they willing to do? What are they able to do? And some people it's like, no, I can't afford that. It's like, so what we really have to think about a few areas of of sort of the parameters of which Mm -hmm. we can work with patients. Do you find the ideas and the concepts between the systems kind of melding together in your mind? Like for me, for example, things just like automatically connect. So like when I learned that, you know, liver is associated with anger and then I learned liver from more conventional like biomedicine perspective, those ideas all informed each other. Mm -hmm. Like they all became like this one general idea of like, this is all stuff related to the liver. There's this take on it, there's this take on it, there's this take, and they're probably all factors somehow. Yeah. So I think that all that is information. Yeah. It's like a it's like a 500-piece puzzle. It's like the more pieces that you have, the more of an image that you're going to be able to get. And so that's, and what I often start with is just sort of the review of systems. Like, how's the patient sleeping, eating, exercising, hydrating, et cetera? Their moods, how's the weight? What's the treatment that they're going under? You know, what, what about them and what are they able to do, willing to do? And so it's like all these factors are playing a part into sort of the direction. Mm. And so it's really more of an individualized approach, and it's hard to cookie-cutter it into a one-size-fits-all. That's the way I like to view it, too, that um, everything... Any kind of idea or concept is just a map of reality. But reality is what it is. It's uh, incredibly complex and mysterious, especially when we try to define it. 
um, but all these different ways of looking at it, they give more information about what it is, but ultimately, you know, the map is not the terrain. The The system is not, like, the truth in any, like, it's more of a, a way to formalize and perceive and understand what the truth is, in at least a portion of it. So that that's kind of how I, um, I look at it. What do you like to use acupuncture for? Like, what have you seen it most most beneficial for? Oh, I use acupuncture for almost anything. Right. You know, and so it's a it's a tool. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things. And some people are like, oh, I hate needles. I've seen enough needles, mm-hmm. you know, with their treatments. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, what about acupressure? Or, you know, there's other therapies that you can utilize from shiatsu or just other forms of body work, etc. I mean, but with regards to cancer treatment, I mean, there's data on acupuncture and nausea or acupuncture and neuropathy, the numbness and tingling that can happen from some of the treatments, or mm-hmm. acupuncture and pain, you know, or acupuncture and lymphedema that could happen, like, have a head and neck cancer patient having some edema around the neck just post-surgery and post-radiation, and it's helping sort of reduce mm-hmm. some of the tightness of that lymphedema mm-hmm. and swelling um, to uh, lymphedema of a limb. You know, mm. just sort of there's initially a big fear about sticking needles in. You know, this goes back to when I just came out of school, you know, 20 years ago. And they thought that, okay, yeah, don't do blood pressures, no needle draws, you know, blood draws, no acupuncture. It's like, but, you know, the data didn't support that. And so a recent study by Barry Castleth out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, they were looking at, okay, is, it, is there going to be an adverse effect of, of infection? And so that was the main purpose of the study. And what they found is it didn't increase the risk of infection and it actually decreased circumference of mm. the lymphedema arm. And so done appropriately by somebody who knows what they're doing, it can be effective to reduce some of the lymphedema of a limb. So, I mean, it can really, it can be used for most things. Mm. And just, it's a matter of experience. And so I, people often ask, it's like, well, I've got a friend in New York or I've got a friend in Georgia, you know. Mm. Do you know anybody there? And I often... You know, there are times where I do, but oftentimes no. And so just if you're interested in getting acupuncture for those treatments, it's like you would want to talk with the provider that's providing that service and just to see what's mm-hmm. your experience mm-hmm. with my condition. Mm. If they've never seen it before, maybe you keep looking. Mm. You know, but if they have and they have a favorable response, the next is to meet with them to see how comfortable are you. Because mm. there's people that maybe we would resonate with and sort of feel comfortable with. And that's better than somebody that's like, hmm, just mm. not quite right for me. And so mm. that's just a good way to sort of is to talk with patients or the providers rather mm. and then see how have they ever dealt with neuropathy from chemotherapy? If they mm. haven't, I would probably keep looking. Mm. So there's a lot of um, theories as to why acupuncture works. Mm-hmm. There's kind of in the biomedical system. There's the it's impacting nerves. It's somehow related to opiate releases in different parts of the body or it's related to the fascia what is um what is the the theory from biomedicine that you think explains acupuncture at least a little bit or mm-hmm. the most to you well that's a great question when i'm if we're talking through wearing the hat of chinese medicine it's like we're trying to optimize the flow of chi or the vital energy yeah. that's flowing through us in these channels that yeah. blood the yin the fluids and we do that with needles. Maybe it's flowing too fast, maybe it's too flowing too slow, or maybe it's flowing irregularly, and so we're trying to optimize that way. With the conventional medicine hat, yes, it's usually more of a biochemical response where we're causing a microtrauma, that microtrauma that usually most people aren't going to feel as a trauma. You know, it's so small that it's mm. not going to be 
extremely painful. The worst it should feel is if I took a hair and gave it a slight tug. It may pinch like mm -hmm. that. Most often reported as nothing or a dull ache. <clears throat> but that's going to release histamine. It's going to release serotonin, dopamine. Mm. Substance P, it's going to release the endorphins. We know the endorphins, the body's natural morphine, is going to be an important part because they do studies with naloxone, which blocks mm. the endorphins. Mm. And they notice less of an effect when they're using naloxone. Mm. So there is some relationship with that. Exactly. And so naloxone, mm. you may have heard mm. about with regards to the heroin overdoses and then doing the naloxone because that's part of that response of that overdose mm. is just too much of that, in a sense, morphine-like effect. And so blocking it with the naloxone. So somebody had like pain and then they gave them acupuncture and help with the pain. And then somebody had pain and they gave them naloxone to kind of block those receptors and then gave them acupuncture and they didn't have a... Correct. So it is part of it. It's definitely a piece of the puzzle. We know that it's a piece of it. Okay. And so, but it, and it's a big piece. Yeah. And so that's the thing. It's like, so that communication, those components are always communicating locally, but then centrally too. It's like, so it's mm. having a local response, but then there's communication with the central nervous system. Yeah. And so we do an MRI before and after acupuncture. We can see areas of the brain reporting pain, reducing blood supply after acupuncture. It's like we've turned mm. down the volume on a stereo set. So the areas reporting pain, reducing the blood supply, so we're having less stimulation of those, of those pain receptors in mm. the cell. So it's used to sort of reboot the computer, sort of it's like if my computer was not working correctly, I'd call IT, mm. and the first thing they'd say <laughs> is to try restarting it. Yeah. And so that's what we're trying to do with acupuncture. Is it seems to help restart mm. or reboot that missense, that missignaling that's going on you know, from an area that's reporting pain in the brain. I, I love that idea of you know, acupuncture is almost like giving information to the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And maybe mm -hmm. like it's a way for us to... like interface with the brain and nervous system because i mean obviously how else would you do it you the best way to do it might be through just poking nerves and uh obviously there's other factors that play yeah. into it. it's not just nerves and technically we don't want to poke the nerves. yeah you that's, don't want to poke that's nerves a, that's a little bit more painful yeah yeah totally, i've actually i've gotten uh, acupuncture not too many times but one time it was like i think it was in my hand and it was like right in the nerve it was like oh so you know when they get the nerve yeah. um well i ideally again we're trained yeah. Not to, to not hit the to, nerves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it may have been a strong sensation or what we call duchi, D-A-Q-I, yeah. which is about the energy. And so yeah. the hand especially, that's a major sort of we use this muscle a lot and it can you can feel it. Okay. And especially if you haven't had acupuncture. I mean it's like maybe Yeah, it's the, my first time. Maybe so the chi is not moving. Experience. And depending on the provider, yeah. it's like they could have been a little bit more stimulating yeah. and with a yeah. little deeper or thicker needle. Yeah. Um and just to kind of uh, wrap this up, um, I wanted to share a story. So the, the one time I got acupuncture, I had a really strange experience. Um, so I got acupuncture, and it was the kind where they make you, like, hold some kind of, like, allergic substance or something in your mm -hmm. hand when they give it to you. And I was kind of open to it. I'm like, all right, let's see. But what I did notice is that the, the next day, it was my first time getting acupuncture. The next day, my nose was just, like, super clear and, like, my allergies just weren't there and like my sense of smell was crazy and I was like the only thing that's changed is the acupuncture so I'm like we really don't know what's going on yeah. with the body there's all so many mysterious things well I mean there is I mean data with acupuncture and allergy response and mm. so again going back to we'll tie it all together yeah it's like so if I'm stressed and as a result of my stress my immune system is 
is mm. sort of hyper responding to the environment. I relax that stress. I can help support my immune system, maybe strengthen it or better balance it. So then it's not hyper responding. And so the analogy I often give, it's like a hot air balloon. And if I sort of, and it's, we have the sandbags, the ballast bags on there sort of holding it down. Mm. And so if I am getting acupuncture and stress and then I relax that stress, it's like cutting those ballast bags off, the hot air balloon goes up. It's like my immune system goes up. We have data that can mm. show that directly. Some components of my immune system enhance. And all I did was get acupuncture. But as a way to better balance my immune system, maybe I'm interacting better with the world that I am living in so that my immune system is in a better state of balance. And so it's not hyper-responding to any allergens that then may trigger mm. it. And it's a, a way more empowering view than thinking, you know, you're just the victim of external circumstances that, you know, the state of your health is up to you and the choices you make every day and things like coronavirus, you know, there's a lot that we can do about it that's not just sanitizing our environment. Sanitizing our spirit and our diet also is exactly. a big factor. And so that's the, the, as you said, empowering. It's like we have a certain accountability for our health, which has been you know, honestly trained out of us, yeah. you know, when we have antibiotics developed in the 30s and just mm. we thought that, wow, they'd solve every condition that we had, you know, into the 20th century and beyond. And now we know that that's not the case. So we stopped taking really true accountability and mm. saying, my choices matter. It's like how I eat matters, how I sleep matters, how I hydrate matters. The people in my life, you know, it can matter. It's like, do I have people that stress me out or I have people that are supportive and I have good social support? It's like, the amount of sun that I get, and vitamin D, I mean, it matters. And so when we start looking at that as the terrain and saying, okay, what can I do to optimize my training? Coronavirus is not the problem. If, we, if I get coronavirus, it's not the problem. It's just a symptom telling me that I'm not in balance. And how do I help myself get back in balance? And it will be good for coronavirus, flu, influenza. I mean, it will good, be good beyond. Just mm. trying to live our lives in balance is really the best way that we can do it. Mm. So where can people find uh, your work and uh, how can they get in contact with your clinic and things that you do? Well, if they Google me, they'll find me at, at Providence Hospital and that's where I am uh, most of the time. And I am trying to get my own website, mm. which I don't have anything on it right now, but um, I'll be looking for that. So Dr. Locke Chandler and trying to uh, expand more of the offerings like what you're doing here, just about video videos just on different topics from from cancer to, you know, hot flashes or healthy choices diet. It's like, so really trying to expand sort of some aspects to enhance people's knowledge to help them balance and, right. and be healthy in their lives. Knowledge is power. And knowing knowledge that your choices matter is empowerment. So yeah. knowledge plus empowerment equals health. <laughs> nice. Nice. I just made that up. Uh, I like it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when we look at the root word of health, it's whole, W-H-O-L-E. And so what is it that makes us whole? From mm -hmm. our diet, our lifestyles, our mental, emotional, and our spiritual. Yeah. Those all help round us out. And so thinking about how can I balance my life, that's really should be the goal. And that's a life journey, too. That doesn't happen overnight, mm -hmm. and that's a constant thing to work on. Because we can always uh, be, you know, being normal isn't healthy. You want to be like bountiful of energy and health and positive feeling. That's the state that we aim for, not just being like not sick. Because yeah. that's the typical like, I'm not sick, so I'm fine. But like, are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Like those, 
I think redefining health as that is important because that gives us, you know, it's like um, the higher your ideal that you aim for, the more likely you are to get higher up. If you just aim to not be sick, like you'll get there eventually and then you'll stop. But if you aim to be really, really healthy, so healthy that you're just like overflowing with health, then, you know, you'll be above average in terms of how you feel about your life. Yeah, it's like Lake Wobegon. Yeah, all above average. But that's the, the presence of wellness versus the absence of disease. Yeah. And so we often, you know, in conventional medicine, think about the absence of disease, disease as in, oh, your blood pressure is, is absent, as in, not as in dead, but as in it's below what we would treat for a high blood pressure. Yeah. You know, or your blood sugars are, are in a good range, as opposed to, you know, are you really sort of living sort of a healthy choices yeah. lifestyle that would help support that too? Or is it just due to the medication? You know, are you on the cholesterol-lowering medications? And then you can eat whatever you want, or at least people have yeah. that idea. I can go to McDonald's, and but I'm on my cholesterol-lowering medications. I can have that cake. I'm on insulin. If only it worked like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if they found a pill for that, I mean, people should probably take it. But so far, they haven't. Yeah. So. so it's really knowing yeah. that yeah, the choices we make can be very impactful for yeah. our health. And the best medicine... You know, if you need to take those things, great, but focusing in on those aspects that can also help you is, is another way to approach it, too. Great. Well, there you have it, folks. Dr. Locke Chandler, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Herbal Hour podcast. Be sure to check out our website at herbalhourpodcast.com. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and the video episodes are on YouTube. For lovers of herbs natural healing, and holistic health. A special big announcement for the month of April. Kentaros Therapeutics is releasing a line of mythical mixtures. These are a group of herbal formulas that are made to support a variety of issues such as sleep, reproductive health, mood, stress response, and a variety of other really important things. These liquid herbal extracts or tinctures as they're called, are made from fresh and organic ingredients acquired from local farms in the Portland or general Oregon area. These tinctures are deeply inspired by mythology. For example, one of my favorite formulas that I like to use before bedtime to help me with sleep is called Morphean Dream. In Greek mythology, Morpheus was the god of dreams. He would come to people during the night in a human form, disguised, sent by the gods to bring them messages in the form of a prophetic dream. It was said that dreams passed through two gates. The dreams that would deceive and would never come true passed through the gate of ivory. Those that would become true, that will, would be fulfilled, passed through the gate of horn. This mixture is specifically formulated to help support sleep, to calm the body and the mind, and to improve dreams. It has some of my favorite calming herbs, valerian, lavender, chamomile, and a special touch for flavor and also very good for sleep support, hops. These ingredients work synergistically to get you to rest, to get you to sleep, to help calm your minds, restless thoughts, so you can have the energy that you need to go about your day. Also, it doesn't taste too bad because we add some organic raw honey into it because we believe that herbal extracts can be not only very potent, 
but delicious as well. Be sure to check out our herbal products at ktherbs.com. That's the letter K, the letter T, Kintaris Therapeutics, herbs.com. We have a variety of other formulas there, including four other mythical mixtures based on the gods and goddesses of mythology. We have a reproductive support herbal extract called Eros Potion, a mood support extract called Blissful Soul. We have Morphine Dream. We also have an adaptogenic blend to help overcoming stress called Herculean Strength. And last but not least, we have one of our favorite formulas, Guardian Angel, which has four of the best immune supporting herbs in it. Thanks again for listening, guys. Stay safe and be sure to check out our websites, ktherbs.com. And if you're a fan of natural mental wellness and want to learn more about herbs that are specific for mental wellness, you can look into holisticpsyche.com. Thanks so much.